Welcome into Natchez Glenhouse Stories number nine. We are almost at double digits, my friends. This week is another exciting week for me personally in doing the podcast. Forever, I have admired the work that the entire team at David Austin Roses has done. I was aware of David Austin Roses pretty early on in my gardening phase of my life. I think the first time I heard about them was probably around like 2004, 2005. I was just on the periphery of getting into vegetable gardening. And I was actually considering rose hips as something that was really an interesting thing to potentially grow for uh, like culinary cooking uses. And I remember I came across a uh, couple of pieces and Michael Marriott's name was in them and David Austin and David Austin Roses were in those articles as well, talking about the different types of rose hips. By the way, rose hips are essentially just the seed pods for roses. But what's fascinating about them is they vary tremendously huge orange tan colored ones to small dainty reds and some roses barely produce any hips whatsoever. That was my introduction to it. And ever since then, I've had David Austin on my intellectual radar. And one of the things I have admired about them so greatly is I know of no other horticultural plant company, and I'll use that word, that has that has conveyed the magic and the whimsy and the charm of gardening like David Austin Roses has. And when we had Rebecca Reed on a few stories ago, I hope we started to lay some of that groundwork for you. So when I reached out to Michael, and I knew that we could set up a time for he and I to do this together. I really wanted to make sure that that's what we talked about a lot. Is a little bit of the backstory of David Austin Roses and Michael's time there and how Michael came to the company. But also that magic that so many times people aren't seeing in the way they approach gardening at the beginning. And I'm in a position where I can be a little bit more critical. But if you walk into a place that calls itself a garden center, a landscape center, and you don't feel any magic. And what I mean magic is you look around and you are inspired. You see things that you've never seen before. Things that seem like it's half real, half woodland fairy, maybe even a little avatar for you. And you're in the wrong place. You have to have a magical whimsy to gardening to take the days when a plant maybe dies or the days when it's 98 degrees outside. That magic and that whimsy is what your focus becomes. Not the plant that occasionally dies because it happens in every garden to every person or those hot days. So while you're listening to this conversation between Michael and I, I want you to keep that in mind. No matter what you do with plants in your world, if you have one house plant on a shelf or if you're attempting to grow a flower farm, you got to keep your eye on the magic.
So if you joined us a couple of weeks ago for our last uh, Natchez Glenhouse stories, we talked with Rebecca Reed from David Austin. And I asked Rebecca a, con- a question during the conversation of if she thought David Austin had been born in the United States and he still had the same passion for roses, would it have been successful? So today's story, I'm joined by Michael Marriott, who's worked for David Austin for, for a while now, Michael. You, you're, you're one of the, the, the senior people, I would imagine, at David Austin right now still. Yeah, yes, uh, senior in terms of uh, of actual age and also how long I've been here. So I, <laughs> I um I started here in 1985. So uh, yeah, 33 years. In fact, 34 this year, I suppose. So there couldn't be a better person to ask the same question to, Michael. And this is one of the things that I'm really fascinated by is the difference culturally in the approach to gardening between the UK and over here in the States. I'm going to pose the same question to you. If David Austin is super passionate about roses, does he find the same level of success with, with his, with the company and with his, his efforts in hybridizing if he's born in the United States? Uh, I think if he tried to do it when he did, um, which was, he started off in, uh, in the 60s, and he, the first of his uh, true English roses, the Austin roses, was 1969. Um, I mean, it took him a long time. It took him until 1983 before really he made the breakthrough. That's partly the fault of his roses. They weren't actually mm-hmm. all that good in that, at, at that stage. Um, but also the, the, the culture over here, I don't think, was was really very ready to, to receive those sort of roses. There was... There was Right from the start, there was a small group of passionate people who, who didn't like the hybrid teas and floribundas and were keen on the old roses. But it was still in the, in the 70s uh, and even the early 80s, it was still very much, um, the rose industry still very, very much biased towards the hybrid teas and the floribundas. And, and a lot of people didn't, really didn't know what old roses were and, and they looked at uh, classic old rose bloom and uh, so yeah, <laughs> I don't want that. I want my plastic high point in center, and I want my nice upright plant uh, and uh, my nice upright shrub. And of course, they wanted very good repeat flowering as well. Um, so I, I think he he timed uh, his first introductions absolutely perfectly because actually it it gave time for the rose culture in, in this country to catch up to what he was feeling, uh, but also it gave him time for um, his actual practice, his, 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 uh, his rose breeding, to start producing some good worthwhile varieties. And so the, you know, the three varieties that were introduced uh, that really revolutionized the rose worlds and, and, and brought David Austin and his English roses to the to the attention of the public was was uh, heritage Mary Rose and and of course Graham Thomas and Graham Thomas was the one that really um, when that was introduced at the Chelsea Flower Show in 1983 press got hold of it and enthused about it and um, uh, and so all the, all the visitors came along wanted to see this Graham Thomas Rose and and see what David Austin was all about uh, and the story goes that. Um, the other rose growers at uh, Chelsea at the time got so fed up with being asked, where, where's David Austin and where's Graham Thomas? You know, they said, 
one more person comes along and asks me where where uh, where they are, I'm going to hit them over the head <laughs> or shove them into a rose bed or something like that. Um, because it, yes, the immediate popularity was 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 amazing then, and uh, and then from my point of view, I was incredibly fortunate because uh, up to then I didn't uh, really appreciate roses very much, and it was really by great fortune that I got to work up here. So, so what was what do you think was the cultural difference in the UK between that period of time psychologically? Why was the the hybrid tea the choice for that twenty year, almost thirty year gap between David's original work to the eighty three Graham Thomas Chelsea Flower Show? What as far as a gardening psychology was it just? It was new again because enough time had passed and people were over it. What was the initial allure of the hybrid tea, and then what changes it? I think it was a combination of of um, events, and so yes, the hybrid tea and the floribunda had been around for quite a number of years, and it, and it really created a, a very set style of gardening, very formal, um, uh, very staid, you could say, really, uh, and also. Uh, fairly dependent on sprays to keep it keep them relatively healthy and 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 really roses in those days people demanded that they should stay healthy and so they, you know they sprayed them with all sorts of um, horrible things and of course um, Rachel Carson with a uh, what's her book um, Rachel Carson's book the uh, what's the something spring isn't it yeah. uh, she uh, that, that raised awareness on on damage that was being done to, to nature by all these sprays. Um, uh, but the other thing, yes, yes, and the other thing is that I think a lot of, this is the difference between the states, uh, North America and, and the UK, that, that um, showing roses and showing plants generally in, in flower shows, well, people were getting less and less interested in that. Uh, and so even today, um, that there's there's very little interest in this country for showing flowers and plants in, in flower shows to try and win the gold medal, uh, first prize or whatever. Whereas in the states, that's still it's, still, it's much more popular than it is uh, over here. And so, really, um, you know, the hybrid tea uh, is the rose that you uh, you want to show uh, to try and win your first prize at the flower show. That's an interesting. Uh, let's talk. Where did this come from, David? Oh, Michael, I'm sorry. Where do you think this was with the flower show history? What, what, what it, you know, this has been, I think, for people that are non gardeners and even for people that are gardeners, there's sort of this subsection of the flower show world. But what I find interesting about that is both with dahlias, roses, so many flowers. Maybe the word hijacked is a strong word, Michael, but it seems that a lot of the information and the mythology of roses and dahlias was dominated by the flower show world for a long time. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure about, I call them dahlias, um, but I'm not sure about dahlias so much, but certainly, I, I mean, it, um, all the stuff that you read about how to prune roses, how to grow them, uh, how to plant them in your garden, it's all can, can be completely hijacked and, and ruined, actually, by um, people wanting to grow the ro perfect rose for the show bench. 
because you know if you want to grow the perfect rose or dahlia or chrysanthemum or the monster onion or cabbage or, or, or pumpkin or whatever like that you know that's going to win the prize at the flower shows you do all sorts of ridiculous things and i have great respect for these people i think you know there's room for everybody and if they want to do that then then fine and, and i'm not not being critical of them at all it's just another layer of passion really um but what what it has very negatively affected um our ideas of of how to grow roses in the garden and it's made out the idea that actually growing roses uh, in the garden is really complicated that you know so people now are completely paranoid about pruning roses you know i i, I did a, something for um for a, a journalist um, magazine yesterday and i'm doing a pruning course next week and pe people are completely obsessed about it they just you know, you see a rose bush and they're completely um, frozen by fear of what damage, and they ended up end up by cutting sort of about three inches off the top, rather than doing what they should do. And then you know, there's all this rubbish about cutting to an outward pointed bud and cutting and then cutting at a an angle, and it's got to be a sort of an eighth of an inch above the bud. And uh, and then you know, how far apart to plant the roses, and so it ends up that roses in rose beds, you know, it's Three quarters of it is is bare ground, and the rest of it is is roses. It just looks absolutely awful. So yeah, the the, the, um, <laughs> the flower shows have got, and not, uh, not only that, it's not just the cultural size. Actually, is the shape of the flower and the bush. And so the plastic hybrid tea is is beautiful at that perfect stage, you know, when it's got when it's still at the bud stage, essentially when it's sort of high pointed center. But that's fairly fleeting, and so once it opens up a bit more. Uh, then it becomes, you know, just um, a group of 20 or 30 petals. And I'm being a bit extreme here. I'm being a bit over rude and, and hybrid tea lovers will, will be shouting at me <laughs> and saying that's not true. Uh, but um, it, it, it is true to a certain extent. And so, and also they wanted these stiff upright stems so that when they cut it, you could bring it uh, uh, into the vase to, to so stand upright in the vase for the show bench. Or... Or be in arrangements as well in the house. Um, uh, so, uh, and yeah, so it's 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 it has ruined the rose, and that's why really roses have fallen from favour. That because the hybrid teas, um, uh, the, the breeding direction of the hybrid tea um, made them essentially into fairly boring and very similar uh, group of plants, and so. And again, I'm being extreme here, but the only real variation between one variety of the and the other of a hybrid tea um, was um, was color. So, when you joined David Austin in '85, how influential was that flower show world on roses in the UK? On a, on a scale for it, just to put it in perspective, was it was it a really dominant force? Were most of the rose buyers that were you know, and, let, and let's call that, you know, someone who frequently buys roses, right? Not the the ones when you're doing a home kind of buying. Was it really influential at that point? And have you seen it change? Obviously, you said that it's it's far less now than it ever has been in the UK. But have you seen it significantly change and then therefore change the direction of just roses overall? Are you talking about the, the amateur flower show for, for winning first prize? With yes. Your, yes. Yeah. Um, I think in those days it was it was very uh, very little influence actually it was very minor 
part of it. And today it's very interesting to see actually. Actually, it's very interesting because uh, because uh, a lot of flower shows around the world now um, they have separate groups for Austin roses, um, whereas actually I think in this country, in the UK, where practically the only country in the world that don't, doesn't have a separate section for Austin roses, they're, they're put in with um, other shrub roses, which is absolutely fine. I don't know quibble about that at all. So, um, so. Let's let's touch on that for a second. Here's how I, I look at the the United States view of gardening and plants, Michael. The West Coast of America does most of the large scale growing for the country, yeah. but the one thing that we lack a little bit, I'm going to be kind here, is say a bit of a brain trust for gardening. So I've always looked at the UK more as that. That's really more of a gardening culture than the United States is. Do you still think that's true today? Now, obviously, you're biased, Michael, but (laughs) do you still feel the sensibility of the British gardener is more gardening-centric than landscape production-centric? I think definitely yes. Yeah, yeah. And I think... Even uh, and widening the scope, even within the world, I think um, we, we are we, we have this natural advantage. I think that actually the climate is very uh, very kind to us. You know, we, we have no extremes, um, and uh, and the soils are often quite good as well. So I, I think it, that helps us a lot. You, know, you, you go to go over to. Um, to France, to southern France, and, and the climate is very challenging. The soil can be very challenging as well. Uh, and uh, so I, I think we have a huge advantage over here with our climate that it makes gardening uh, much easier. I mean, you, 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 it's quite easy to garden 365 days a year here. I mean, it's, we occasionally get snow, and we occasionally get sort of hard frost down to... Well, hard frost for us over here is, is minus five centigrade, which is what it, uh, only into the mid or high twenties for you. Um, so, and it's never too hot. We're very rarely too hot, and so uh, yeah, it's, it, gardening is dead easy for us. Um, and, and it's um, so that, that's the and there's lots of lovely gardens to visit as well. Do you, do you think uh, that has so much? One of the things that I've always felt there are so many historical gardens. In the UK, and as an example, we'll use media too. Um, Gardener's World, opinion sometimes for myself aside, but Gardener's World has been on on the BBC there for I think what over fifty years. Yeah, and yet in America, we don't really have any mainstream media content that's related to gardening. Yeah, it's very sad. Why do you think that is, Michael? Well, why is that? You know, psychologically more so. What's your opinion on why there's always been an audience there, but not necessarily here in this country? I suppose partly what you mentioned earlier on that that actually trying to do a nationwide gardening program in your country is very difficult because they'll be having to be forever adding provisos. You know, well, if you live in California, you might be doing this, but if you live in Vermont, well, you're actually still. Uh, you're still in, you know, got six foot of snow or something like that. So from, <clears throat> from the practical point of view, uh, it would be very difficult um, to 
to do a, a gardening program without just being it, it being just very general about you know VTs um, uh, looking around at various uh, beautiful gardens and just from a viewer's point of view uh, of just looking at rather than doing an actual practical gardening because if you talk about sowing seeds when it's right in sort of Southern California uh, then you're still months away from sowing seeds and buying you'd have forgotten how to do it really. So from the practical point of view, I think that that's the main thing. And and I suppose that especially there's a great there's great concern in this country about um, young people not wanting to garden, and and I don't know how true that is actually. Um, we all get increasingly busy, um, but I think gardening is very popular, but it's also actually quite a for the people who are really keen on it, it's very much a minority sort of thing. So I think there's, there's, there's always. I don't think it's a real scare that people aren't um, aren't gardening, taking up gardening um, as they get older. Uh, you know, in their twenties and thirties, then it's a struggle. You've got families, and you're all terribly busy. But once you get into your forties, and hopefully, uh, got a you know half decent sized house with a decent garden as well then it's, it's i'd say it's very hard to to um to not go out into the garden I and mean, personally i i just don't know what people do if you don't garden i mean i would just be <laughs> completely bereft if i didn't have a garden to go out and uh, do the stuff in <laughs> one of the one of the things that i i think is a compelling thought for everyone to ponder right now is we saw this a little bit with food over the last 25 30 years in cooking that as there was more and more food-based television content than digital content, social media content, it hasn't necessarily corresponded to more people cooking at home. And I see it a little bit with the gardening plant section as well, that there's an increase in the content, but that doesn't necessarily translate into people actually doing it. And one of the things that I also want to run past you, Michael, is, and, and maybe this is the accent difference to you for some reason, as Americans, Michael, as you well know at this point, because I'm sure everyone's told you this, we have some kind of romanticism occasionally with both the British accent and the British landscape. Yeah. Yeah. Why is it so much more whimsical gardening? in the UK than here. And I think that's one of those barriers for people who maybe they see pictures on social media of gardening, a rose, whatever it might be, but it's not as, it's it's more of a spectator sport for them. In Because in this country, I think we've developed a lot of rigidity and formality and rules. Why do you think that is? It seems so many more British gardeners are just willing to just do things that look pretty versus in this country, we want to get out a ruler and make sure the pretty is going to fit in the proper space. Uh, Tricky one to to answer that. I I wonder if it's a greater reliance in the States for landscapers to come along and uh, do the work for you. It's very much more accepted that um, that, that, uh, that you don't go out and garden or you do very minimal stuff, whereas um, landscapers in this country are, are, are really quite few and far between. Um, uh, it gives you more, more common, uh, and so it's much more accepted that, that uh, 
as a homeowner, you go and do the, do the work yourself. Yeah. I think that's one of the, the, the key things moving forward. Anyone uh, and I think that without being too rude about landscapers, uh, same in this country as well, they vary hugely in, in how good they are. I mean, certainly in this country, there's people who just know how to use a hedge trimmer and, um, and the leaf blower. Uh, which, by the way, is my absolute and complete pet hate in the garden is a leaf blower, um, uh, and uh, that's about all they, they they do. I mean, even in this country, uh, I, I mean, I I go to some very very top, absolute top prestigious places in the country, and I show them how to plant a rose, and I say, um, okay, here you are, it's your turn to do it now, uh, and to plant the other you know, two hundred or, or three thousand or whatever. And these guys, these are head gardeners, these are gardeners. They don't know how to handle a spade. I mean, it's just uh, really scary to me. And I, and I think that's even more extreme possibly in the States. Oh, especially trust trust when, me, trust me, Michael. It is. It, yeah. <laughs> it is very. Especially and, when you've got, you haven't got good soil. So if you're yes. confounded by or, or confronted rather by a really heavy clay, which I think a lot of the American soils are, then... Um, then, yeah, you know, it becomes really hard work. And so you don't blame for not wanting to dig holes too much. You don't almost don't blame the gardener for not wanting uh, to dig too many holes, especially if if the temperatures are really high, you know, and you just sort of end up by, by breaking up into a really heavy sweat within five yeah. minutes. So, so let's, let's take a, a step back here for a second, because uh, I think we're, for me, there's a topic here that's really important to cover. There are so many, uh, I've, I've been mentioning Great Dixter the last couple of days because I got in this container kick, Michael, of putting these little yeah. container vignettes together. And one of the things I've, I've always liked about when, when Christopher Lloyd uh, was, was still alive and now with Fergus at Great Dixter is the little container vignettes of maybe unique or new plants. And even this year, I saw they uh, used a fair amount of conifers in some of their container vignettes. And I thought that's, that's always a really interesting way to do it to me. You know, experiment with some plants in containers gives you a bit of a unique idea. There are so many of those gardens in the UK and not just the amount of them, but the length and the history behind many of them. This country, we don't have that as much or hardly at all. And some of this is the people behind them and the credibility and the track record of those people. And what I am seeing a bit of an uptick in social media from is people that have been gardening for three years, four years, sort of calling themselves experts, Michael. Yeah. And I find that a little concerning. And then not only, I, I've been picking on this one recently, not only are they calling themselves experts, but then they're charging $4,200 for workshops. Yeah. Let me get a sense of this. You already mentioned that at the very beginning, you're 30 plus years now with David Austin Roses, but you joined them in 1985. And I know you were involved with plants before even that. Give us right, sort so of, was, when you joined David Austin, before. We'll, we'll, we'll tackle your time at Austin in a minute, but- what is Michael Marriott doing before your time with David Austin? Um, my my parents were always very keen on plants and gardens, so I started gardening at a very very early age. You know, as soon as I as soon as it's uh, humanly possible, really. 
but then was brought up in a farming family and so always had, had a great love for, for the farming side of things and then actually became essentially responsible for our two-acre garden at home when I was still a teenager. You know, I did practically all the work uh, in, that, in that garden uh, and uh, did everything from you know, looking after the, the flower borders to growing vegetables and growing the lawns and everything like that. So, um, so and, and I loved it. Yeah, so that was uh, great for me. Um, then I went to university to study agricultural botany because coming from a farming background, I was more interested in the... I, well, I saw it as a better source of employment to be on the agricultural side rather than the horticultural side. Um, and, um, and then after that... Um, I, I got a job um, actually as a gardener straight away up in, in Scotland, which was absolutely wonderful. I really enjoyed that. One of the most beautiful romantic spots in the, in the UK, and if not the world, the west coast of Scotland, looking after a fantastic garden there. And then I got a job uh, in the tropics growing rubber, cocoa, and oil palm for five years uh, in the Pacific. Uh, and I love traveling. I love seeing... I've seen different parts of the world, and and I, I'm always endlessly fascinated by how variable plants are, how different different plants are in different parts of the world. So, being in the tropics, you know, <clears throat> literally within a few degrees of the equator, uh, that to me was just uh, was absolute bliss, really. Um, and then came back and um, got a job at a fairly awful rose nursery just outside London for a year, and then. And then saw the job advertised as nursery manager up here at David Austin's. And so when I first came up here in 85, uh, it was still a very small nursery, um, just employing a handful of people and, and uh, not, not growing very many roses. Uh, and I worked as a nursery manager. And I used to spend 90% of my time actually out, out in the field, uh, working alongside um, the other guys or women, um, out in the field, and which I thoroughly enjoyed as well. So let's put that in perspective for a second. And this is one of those moments, Michael, you'll, you'll feel where I'm going with this. If Michael Marriott is going to talk to me about roses, I'm going to listen. Okay. If someone who's been on Instagram for two months and posts really pretty photos of roses, I may take a moment and wait before I listen. And that is something, are, are you concerned about that at all? I'm curious because there's so much history to plants and there are so many people along the way that I do see this trending in particular on Instagram because it's the visual of the, the most visual of the social medias where there's people that are just sort of filling a void who just are good at posting pretty pictures but then they're being seen as experts or authorities and they could be potentially either steering people wrong or I think maybe even worse is giving people some expectations and then the information they give them won't meet those expectations. Does that concern you at all right now? Um, I, I see quite a few varieties being mentioned on place like Instagram that that we actually no longer grow. So one of the classics, there's two actually that come to mind. One is Abraham Darby and the other one is Evelyn. Now, both of those varieties actually will do really quite well in, in places like Southern California or, or uh, Adelaide in Australia or Melbourne or somewhere like that. 
but we've actually stopped growing them in this country because um, they're just no longer very good plants and their resistance to disease is fairly poor. So if, if yeah, so if I tried to grow an Abraham Darby in my, my, uh, my garden here uh, without any spraying at all, uh, then I'll be, I'll be disappointed it wouldn't be a good plant. Um, that, that actually, those two plants actually, no, we, we no longer sell them. So actually, no, nobody can buy them uh, over here. And uh, so what we, we try to do from our point of view is actually limit the, we, we don't, the plants that we think are no longer good for growing, um, uh, we, we no longer sell. And if, if uh, we do offer a variety and we have um, worries about them, uh, then we'll say, well, you know, this is okay in a, in a warm, dry climate, but uh, don't, you know, don't, don't expect to do well uh, up in, the, uh, in New England or somewhere like that, where it's going to be a lot wetter. And then also then there's things like zonal um, uh, information as well, how hardy it is. We try to do that. So I, um, I don't think it is all that much of a worry, actually. Um, the, I mean, the other concern is, of course, uh, this is very pertinent to a, to a rose and very pertinent to the English rose. Is it, beauty of the rose is not just the bloom. You know, I, I say to people, uh, you can have a plant that uh, never stops flowering, has the most beautiful bloom, has a fantastic fragrance, never gets any disease, but actually is ugly. Uh, and so just showing a picture of a bloom on its own only tells you a very small part of the picture. So uh, you, you you need to see the whole uh, to decide whether uh, it's a beautiful plant. And that's another, another part of that I get very cross about um, is that, that, that when people, plant breeders, not, rose, not necessarily rose breeders, but they're included in that as well, a lot of plant breeding uh, and probably a lot of animal breeding as well, pet, pet breeding, <laughs> is done uh, on the basis of novelty. You know, people. Uh, they want novelty, and novelty, of course, is uh, very often has nothing to do with beauty at all. And, and I think what we, what most people want in their garden, um, is a, is a beautiful plant. If you have a, if you buy a, a novel plant, something very different, you know, it's very short, or it's a different, uh, or it's very brightly coloured, or or whatever characteristic. Um, it, it, you might be a bit startled by it at the garden centre. Oh gosh, I must have that. And then after a time, you realise actually it's it's pretty damn ugly, and you just want to throw it out. Really, whereas uh, beautiful plants um, are going to last a lot longer. You're going to be able to live with that and and adore it and look after it a lot better than if it's uh, something that's just um, you'd introduce on the basis of novelty. And of course, you know, thinking about that, I, I shouldn't really go into the. the dog well because I, I know very little about it really well, but i i think you, I, well I, I i i've seen many people on social media recently michael that i would probably say have adopted or bought a puppy just for the instagram photo of it <laughs> so right. i don't think you're yeah. too i don't think you're yeah. too far off from it and i think that's well, no. that, and then, that's, of course it led to all sorts of problems with, with pets having breathing problems and and you know all sorts of dreadful difficulties well and, and that's this is got it's bad it's well, really immoral and, and that's one of the things that does concern me a little bit is that some of the, uh, the the places, I'll be kind and not say people so much, but the places that people are getting some of their gardening content from through social media are sometimes places that are, to, to use the, the phrase, they're just doing it for the gram. 
the, the photo of whatever they're showing you, like you're talking about, it may not be a great plant at all. But just it's that close up photo of the bloom in that particular day at that particular light that you can capture. But right beneath that flower is a horrible, scrubby looking, black spot riddled, defoliated rose shrub. And that is something that for me over the last couple of days, even I've been digging uh, Dahlia. We'll go Dahlia because we're going to, we're talking with Michael. So we're going to go Dahlia completely. I've been digging tubers and there are some that are just horrible tuber producers. Just the, the flower is great. The plant has a lot of attributes that you like, but if you were in the tuber selling business, you would eliminate the plant just based upon that, the the quality of its tubers. So there's so much more to the story than just the flower sometimes. And just take you up on that point actually, because uh, that that is a very commercial aspect of it you see so so uh, in the rose world the, the 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 really commercial rose producers they they'll concentrate their production on varieties that produce a very high percentage of grade 1 plants that are ready for sale uh, but there's a lot of roses which are very beautiful but actually are absolute Pigs from the point of view of the production, and and so in our in roses that we grow, we have a mixture of both. We we try to as much as possible to base our the roses that we grow on on are they beautiful plants for the garden? Not not are they do they, do they produce a, a high number of uh, grade one plants that we can send on to the customer? Because if you, if you do that, then you, then really you're, you're you're potentially selling a whole lot of plants which actually not very beautiful, and then uh, emitting a lot of plants that are very beautiful, but just difficult for us to produce. And so that's our responsibility to, you know, if we, they are difficult to produce, you either put the price up um, or just um, or just say, uh, accept that, that that's a difficult rose to produce. And uh, But it is worthwhile growing because it's so beautiful. So that is a beautiful segue, Michael, on this subject, art versus commerce in plant production. Yeah. One of the things yeah. that uh, I used to run a very large nursery in Oregon, and we used to have this conversation, I'm sure a very similar one there for David Austin Roses. This is a beautiful production plant, yield, size, vigor, everything that you're looking at, but maybe it's just a very practical plant. There's really nothing charming or magical about it at all. This plant has some charm and some magic is not a great production plant. Yeah. In your time with David and in your time overall at David Austin Roses, how has that balance been struck between a charming rose with maybe a lesser field production versus what you mentioned, some plants that are great growers, but you know maybe the rose isn't quite as charming as another variety. I mean, how has that been balanced throughout the years? Um, I, I think quite well. Uh, I, I mean, it's down to the customer as well. So you know, if if um, if gardeners don't buy certain varieties, uh, be they ugly or very beautiful or easy to produce or difficult to produce, then then, uh, then you know, at the end of the day, if we are only selling two or three plants of a certain variety a year, then it's just 
Yeah, unfortunately, it's commercially. We either we have to look at how we're, we're selling it and the photographs that we have of it, and, and try and persuade people that it's actually a very beautiful plant and they should be planting more of it in the garden, uh, or we just give up on it. Uh, and, and so it is quite um, quite customer led, and we do we do try and push people gently uh, towards the varieties that we think they will be happiest with uh, in the long term. So in other words, a, a not only a beautiful plant, but a plant that will grow and flower well in their garden. And we don't necessarily take too much um, notice of, of production. And in fact, um, we, we have in the past, and not so distant past at all, uh, introduced some, some varieties that are absolute swines to produce. In fact, one that we're going to be introducing next year, uh, one of the English roses, it's the thorniest <laughs> Uh, most vicious beast you can ever imagine, uh, but uh, and it's going to be an absolute swine to to propagate it. Uh, but it's a, a really beautiful rose. Um, is it going to be more thorny than Munstead Wood? I mean, is, is that? Oh, yeah. Is it really? That, that's that's nothing. <laughs> wow. See, okay. So 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 Michael and I are maybe a little for for many of you that are listening. Let me let me walk you through this as best I can, and then I'll I'll let Michael chime in on this. So when we talk about production, I need to define that better for people. We're not just talking about how it grows. We're talking about its success rate in propagation. You can go back and listen to uh, one of the earlier Natchez Glenhouse stories for all of this sort of the pocket guide on a lot of these terms. That's a big part of it, that if you take vegetative cuttings off of a plant, say you take 100 how many of those actually root successfully? That's part of production. If it's a budded or grafted rose, how many of those successfully take? That's part of production. We're not just talking about once we get it in the ground, how it does. There's this whole other step before that. So when we are evaluating new plants to introduce, that's, that's part of that story. So if you have this rose that's incredibly thorny, and very is it is it a, almost like a moss rose kind of situation, Michael? The new one that you're it's talking a, about It's what we call a, a Scots rose hybrid. Um, uh, Scots roses are hybrids of a, of a wild rose in this country called Rosa spinosissima, uh, which grows around the coasts of the UK, and it's super super thorny, uh, but very tough. And so, by uh, breeding it carefully, we've met the, the, the wild rose in its habitat only flowers once. So, but by crossing it with various varieties, we've made it into a repeat flowering rose. Um, and uh, and so it's a lovely bushy plant that repeat flowers, has charming, quite small yellow flowers, and uh, most gorgeous fragrance as well. And we're really excited about it. But, uh, <laughs> well, and that is one of the things that, you know, to, to, to bring us a little full circle on this. In your experience, and, and you can be as rude as you'd like to about this, Michael, you won't offend me or anyone else. Do you think maybe American, one of the issues as far as people looking at it so practically is maybe, and this is maybe true for the UK too, people are losing touch with the the charm and the whimsy of plants and maybe we're just so much agriculturally based that we're just going for production and production is really ruling the mentality of many of the plants that we see being introduced. Um, I, I, Mm, gosh, um, I, I I would say that I don't know enough about enough about American nurseries to 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 uh, proclaim about that. But having said that, you know there 
there's like in this country, there's everything from the very big producers uh, that ch churn out millions uh, of roses uh, each year to tiny little nurseries that just um, produce uh, a few. And, and to, for those small nurseries to survive, they've really got to uh, look at, uh, at selling roses that are not produced by um, the mass producers and, and producing something different and, and very beautiful. And so that's their USB uh, is uh, is um, is something that is might be difficult to produce, but uh, and might be very much more expensive. But it actually is a, is a really beautiful plant. Well, do you? look at this and and think as as far as David Austin Rose's today goes and where it was that that's part of the, really the the success story and when you join in 85 is that still is that do you notice that immediately because you said you were at a, a horrible rose nursery for a year did you see that really David's goal was just sort of producing beautiful roses that maybe it wasn't just production centric Absolutely. And I, I, th I won't say we're unique in the world at all, but I, I think we are exceptional from that point of view. Um, but, uh, that, that, that David uh, Austin used to get very cross uh, when people said to him, when he started having success, oh, you must have a very good marketing team because you're, you're selling so many of your roses. You're, you're having great success at the moment. And he got very cross with that because... He said it's not no marketing. I mean, in fact, there wasn't really a marketing team at all then. Um, he said it's the beauty of the roses themselves. It's the roses themselves that are that are selling uh, selling themselves. That are the reason why my English roses are successful. And uh, I think he's absolutely um, absolutely right. And, and you see some marketing ploys that are put by some people. And it's just <laughs> I think it's absolutely dreadful. It's absolutely cringe-making. Um, so yeah, I think we're exceptional in the plant world in in looking at beauty and, and wanting to people to have beautiful roses in their garden. It's it's, um, it's not just about how many flowers per square meter it produces over how long. It's uh, is it a beautiful plant? Does it have a wonderful fragrance? You know, fragrance is is something that we talk about an awful lot. And and as as he used to say, uh, a rose is only half a rose if it doesn't have a a lovely fragrance, and it's an absolutely central part uh, of our of a rose. And it's rose also is a is um, such an important part of our everyday culture. You you see it all over the place, all the time. You, you see it in um, uh, in all the different arts, you know, in painting, in music, uh, in uh, in literature. Uh, you see it in the legal system. You see it in religion. Um, you see it uh, in politics. Uh, and uh, and so to debase something so important uh, as our rose to just uh, something that is mass produced and not necessarily very beautiful is is, is a crying shame really. It, um, I always argue that, that the rose is the most garden worthy of all plants. Uh, Define that for me. That that's something that as you're talking about this, it's going through my mind. Define garden rose because I think that's something maybe especially here in the States because of the knockout rose becoming sort of a landscape rose. Define how you and, and David Austin have sort of approached garden rose as a real defining, what are those characteristics? Well, it's, it's, um, 
it's a beautiful individual flower. And of course, the, uh, a beautiful flower can be coming all sorts of guises. It can have just five petals. It can have 200 petals. Uh, it can, uh, the high pointed hybrid tea can be very beautiful. Um, uh, but, uh, but, but people, other people, and I really prefer the, the, you know, the rosette, the old fashioned, um, style of flower, the rosette shape of flower. Uh, but that the very full flower can be rounded. It can be cup shaped. It can be have reflexing petals. It comes in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. Uh, and then, but of course, and then of course, there's a fragrance as well. Uh, and then it's got to be a nice color. Um, in the, the sort of 60s and the 70s, uh, people went in fairly heavily for really bright colors, which you, know, you had to wear dark glasses to be able to to uh, to view them safely. Um, uh, and so, the, and that was a part part of the problem with the hybrid teas. Actually, that the, the colours were um, were quite harsh, and and so actually clashing was a real problem. I always remember in a in a roundabout not far from here, there was a, a planting scheme left over from the sixties of a, of a mixture of, of hybrid teas, and it was just truly awful because they'd mixed up all these different varieties, which of course design wise is a fairly awful thing to do. But they'd mixed up all these colours, but the clashing, every single variety clashed to each other. Um, but if you did that with the English roses, then um, then it would, would design-wise, it wouldn't be very successful. But it wouldn't, at least, they, they don't necessarily uh, clash at all. And then, um, so it's just not the flower, as I mentioned before. It's you know, it's the whole combination. Uh, it's how the flower is held on the bush, um, or what the shape of the bush is. Is it? Right, or is it bushy, or is it arching? Um, and then, of course, uh, health is absolutely crucial as well. So, without being too rude about the knockout roses, and I always hesitate to do this, but you know, if I if I if I, if I rate a, a knockout rose, I say it's a fantastic flowering shrub. You know, it scores nine out of ten as a flowering shrub, but as a rose, it, it scores sort of like two out of ten because it really doesn't have many of the sort of the rosy characters that you you want. Uh, Rose, uh, so you know it has a has a place in the market, but um, as a real rose, it, it, it's rather sad, really. Well, and that's one of the key elements, I, I think, when when I approach talking roses with anyone, is trying to take it away from just like a foundation or a, a border plant of like a, a shrub kind of usage and seeing it in a garden. And I know you do a lot of design work as well still. How difficult sometimes is that message to communicate to people that a rose can be used just anywhere within a garden where it makes sense versus saying that you have to plant them as these larger scale monocultures or in big rose plantings? Uh, Often formal rose garden actually can be truly awful. It's, it's often the, the worst part of any, any garden. People, there's not many formal rose gardens left, really, uh, and quite rightly so, because often they're, they're planted really, really badly if the rose is too far apart. And, and, and sadly, that's not uncommon uh, in the States. Uh, but even in this country, you know, I was, I was in London recently and I went into a park and uh, saw these roses that have been there for the last 50 years and, you know, Three quarters of them were dead or dying, and they were planted for about three or four feet apart. And it was just, you know, it was just, it was so sad. Actually, you know, it's just, 
there's no beauty in that at all. Uh, and it's such a shame. But having said that, a, a well-planted former rose garden can be absolutely superb. You know, it's, uh, uh, after all, what other plant uh, can potentially have a beautiful flower, fantastic fragrance, um, flower for five or six months a year or longer if you live in Southern California or Florida or somewhere like that, um, and be easy to look after. So, you know, it's, it's a shame that uh, the roses are often abused by that. But they are incredibly versatile plants. I mean, they, they, I would say you can you, you can plant them in just about every single part of the garden except the pond, um, and you know even in the in a bog garden you could have one of your American natives called Rosa palustris that, that sits quite happily that grows naturally in a in a boggy area, and then if you live in a in a desert, um, then you have uh, Rosa uh, stellata and Rosa microphylla, which um, which live very happily with absolute minimum. Uh, rain. So, you know, if you go to somewhere like the Huntington Library, uh, you'll see Rosa microphylla there, and it's you know, it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. It's, it's, it's this intense pink sort of flower, absolute simple beauty, and the most fantastic fragrance as well. So, uh, do roses you see, are. Do you see that as where roses are are headed? Is just in general being seen more of just a garden plant. And less so uh, yeah. as, as a formal planting and yeah. away from sort of the, the rose collector kind of approach, yeah. which historically they, I mean, they still are. And, you know, I've, I saw this, the nursery that I ran in Oregon, we primarily did, you know, conifers and Japanese maples. And we still see that today, you know, a garden of just acers, um, these very collector driven gardens. Are you seeing that maybe almost age out? A little bit that maybe the the trend of people is a little less collector centric and maybe just more garden centric uh, very much so yeah yeah and it's, it's absolutely the right move and of course any monoculture is is bad whether it's a human monoculture or a, a plant-based monoculture you know the, the pest and diseases rub their hands in glee when they see a monoculture hanging around you know they know they can hop from one to the next in, with, with, with great abandon and, and cause absolute havoc Whereas if you mix up your whatever plant it is with with, with other plants uh, to create a beautiful whole, um, then that, that the pest and disease is going to find it much more difficult to um, uh, to, to, to wreak havoc. And and you know mixing up roses if it's the right sort of rose with with other plants it can be absolutely beautiful. As, as I'm always particularly fond of putting in blue, you know things like geraniums and campanula and delphiniums and things like that, nepeta. Uh, in with roses because no true blue blue roses of course and so any blue plants just go superbly with just about any colored rose uh, and then the small flowers of the perennials and the annuals and the biennials uh, they look superb uh, con- they contrast beautifully with the large flowers of the roses uh, and then you can get spiky you know things like foxgloves and verbascums you can have those as a contrast between the little rounded shapes of the roses and you can have endless fun uh, trying to create these beautiful combinations, and always the great thing about gardening is 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 it's eminently changeable. You know, you 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 try these things out. To me, that's the absolute fun of gardening. You try these things out, and it might work, it might not work. If it doesn't work, then you dig it up and and move it somewhere else, or you 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 you, you um or you get another plant and try another combination. And uh, you know, so sometimes you'll be successful, and sometimes you won't. But you know. It's, there's, you can never stop gardening. You, and, and I always say any garden that is just maintained 
uh, dies very quickly. Do you uh, think that's one of the things that people miss who necessarily are new to gardening or haven't gotten there yet? Michael will phrase them like that. How creative it is. I think people don't realize that. Yeah, they think they can just go along to the garden center and get a whole lot of plants and um, bung them in and there you are, end of story. But of course, um, just maintaining your garden is very boring. It's like housework, you know, just going around endlessly uh, hoovering and uh, and uh, dusting is very boring, but it's much more interesting if you go out, well, you know, that, that sofa doesn't work very well, let's try and do something else or have a bit different painting up or something like that. And but it's so much easier uh, in the garden and and plants are very cheap uh, you know compared to to um, buying things buying furniture it's incredibly cheap uh, to to go out and buy things and of course you can propagate them yourself dead easy uh, you know trying to make a a table for your house <laughs> you'd be be very challenging. It would be. Yeah. It would be. Neither, I don't think we would. Neither one. We would sign up for the propagating of plants. I don't think we'd sign up for the carpentry, <laughs> Michael, between us. So let me let me ask you this. Let me ask you a question in regards to where you see David Austin roses moving forward, because this was something that uh, obviously you you have to be aware of. So as the English Garden Rose and David Austin roses continue to become more and more successful. And your your the style of the the large Austin roses is probably the most photogenic of the moment. So many other growers throughout the world have started to emulate that look of heavy petal count. That's sort of I'm not I'm not trying to put you guys into too much of a box, but you understand what I'm saying. That's sort of the yeah. the iconic Austin rose look of the moment. Are you eager to show people something else? Are we going to keep going in that direction? And are you a little concerned that, you know, obviously um, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, but clearly that's happened where many other growers have started to have that heavy petal count look. Do you see that continuing to be the trend? Where do you see the look and the style of David Austin Rose is moving forward? Um, I think we will certainly continue to have great variability within our Roses. I mean, as I said, that yellow rose that we're going to be introducing next year—that's uh, it's not completely different to what we've introduced before, but it's complete, uh, complete, uh, completely different from classic Munstead wood or the heavy petal count, as you, as you say, with the big flowers. Um, and so we're always very keen, and, and, and David himself was always very keen to introduce um, roses with either single or semi-double flowers. He saw beauty in all sorts of shapes, of, uh, all sorts of shapes and sizes. Of, blooms and shapes of plants as well so uh and, that, and as i said earlier on you know if you just 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 uh introduce just concentrate completely on one shape of flower like it happened to the hybrid tea then at the end of the day you sort of start becoming a bit bored and you just um you're just reproducing uh something very similar with a slightly different color shade or something like that you know, maybe slight increased disease resistance or whatever um but it, it but if you if you've got the whole spectrum of different plants to go at, then it's so much more interesting. Uh, and as as as, as far as um, other breeders are concerned, you're absolutely right. A, a lot of a lot of breeders at Red Stack, every single rose breeder around the world is trying to emulate what um, what we're doing, with uh, a big degree of um, variation in, in success. And and that's where going back to what you're you're saying about um, photographs on Instagram and things like that, you can you can 
you can show all sorts of beautiful things as just a picture of a bloom. Um, but it, it, that's, as I said earlier on, is only a very small part of the whole story. And so we, we try out quite a few of these uh, look-alike Austin roses at the nursery here. And uh, a lot of them uh, fall down fairly seriously on the shape of the plant. And so it's a sort of rather, uh, often a not very successful hybrid between um, the flower and the and sort of rather ungainly, stiff shape of bush. Yeah, when when I had Rebecca on, one of the, the things that I, I still have thought about is how many roses from seedling were culled every year. And I think when Rebecca and I were talking, it just and this was me doing math off the top of my head, Michael, that almost two or three million rose seedlings is essentially what over David's career since Graham Thomas almost that he would have sort of selected. Take in as brief a time as you can, walk us through that. And you know, I think the number was like eight or nine thousand seedlings that are planted out per year to then observe and then to pick from. And does that make sense to you that in, when you joined in 1985 or are you startled by that at all? That like, there's so much going on with like seedling and then culling to the, the final two or three that you may actually think are worthy. Um, I think when I first joined the, joined the nursery, I, I was very ignorant about rose breeding and have very little concept of it. So I just came in and accepted that what was that uh, that was how you did you, you did it. Uh, and in those those days it was still relatively well compared small compared to what it is today. Um, but yes, I mean the, the, the figure is absolutely astounding. So I mean today we we do something like uh, sixty or seventy odd thousand crosses every year to produce about a quarter of a million seeds. Uh, and from those quarter of a million seeds, this is each year we produce um, about um, uh, 120, 130,000 seedlings. Uh, and so it's from those 120, 130,000 seedlings that we produce every year that we introduce uh, the two or three varieties that we introduce. Uh, and next year, yes, you usually introduce three, but next year it's actually only uh, two varieties we're going to introduce because we decided that nothing's quite right up to scratch. And uh, we were going to introduce that yellow one that I keep on going on about. We're going to introduce it this year, but because it's been such a reluctant uh, rose to propagate, we had to delay it by, by a year because we just haven't got enough plants of it. So what what was that process? Was that, was that David's choice from the very beginning, that that would be the amount to make sure that, you know, again, getting back to that art versus commerce conversation, that to make sure that you you were making choices that were maybe a little bit less based upon production, because clearly that's just a huge amount of effort for anyone, you know, put that in perspective, people. We are talking about taking care of 150,000 little baby rose plants. And then from that group, we're like, nah, 149,998. Yeah, we didn't like them. We get rid of them. Was that from like day one that that was going to be the the North Star for David Austin Roses? Well, it, it's actually worse than that because that's every year. So, you know, every year we're producing those seedlings and it, 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 of course we, it, we're propagating, we're hybridizing every single year. So uh, each year we're producing that number of seedlings. And so the first year they're culled down to about 10,000 
to be um, grafted out into the field, and then they they're grown out there, and then they're gradually reduced from that. So it's so at any one time, uh, there's eight or nine years worth of trials going on uh, in various parts of the nursery, either in the greenhouse or or out in the field. And so yes, from the rose breeders' point of view, it's it's trying to keep all of that in your head and trying to keep us sort of flowing along nicely and and developing it all the time is is a huge challenge indeed a, a very special mind um but it's um uh um what was i going to say it's, it's just a it's gone out of my mind what i was going to say now um was that the decision from day one like, like was that when when david eventually after 83 and then you come on board as the company starts to have success was that because at that point clearly after Grant Thomas being as successful as it was, he could have said, no, you know what? We're just going to start pumping out a lot of varieties, right? That was a moment to, to capitalize monetarily, but it doesn't feel like that was the choice. It feels like there was still like, no, we're not going to fall victim to sort of that short-term opportunity. Yeah. yeah, David Austin was, was absolutely right from when he was uh, his teenager years actually he was absolutely passionate about breeding plants and it was really by chance that he got into roses and so that's he's been his passion uh, all through his life is to breed and develop new varieties of plants and so as money started coming in more and more that was that's where he wanted to direct his his um, his efforts really and and he saw the production that saw the rose nursery as a way of of paying for that, um, for his hobby, if you like, you know, it's a professional hobby and a very, very expensive hobby. We employ something like 13 full-time people, um, uh, year round. We have about an acre of glass that's heated and, and lit. And we have these acres and acres of, um, seedlings that are trialed all the time. So it's an incredibly expensive, um, operation. And I always remember, you know, when I, when I used to be, uh, looking after all of the, what went on out in, outside, um, and I, he would say, oh, well, I need this done in the breeding department. And I say, well, you know, I'm, I'm desperate to get this done in the production department. And, um, and he would say, well, I don't care. <laughs> I want this done now in the breeding department. And the breeding department always take, took precedence over what, uh, what the production side of you. So that was very difficult and challenging from my point of view. Mm. But, uh, you know, that's what that was his passion. He, he wanted it to do. He, he, and you know, by then he was getting on slightly in, in age. You know, he was um, didn't really have success until into his fifties, uh, and so he was he was in a hurry to try and um, he had so many ideas. I mean, that's the thing about him. He, he used to have this book that he carried around with him all the time. You know, he used to uh, ca- uh, he used to go home at the end of the day. Uh, and you knew he, he'd be working on it all night, uh, and then he'd come along the next morning, and you know, he'd come along and open up his book and find his notes that he made last night, and say, "Well, I have I've had this idea. What do you think about it?" And of course, I'd be expected to say, "Oh yes, uh, it's a very good idea. Let's, uh, let's do that sort of thing." Um, but he always had ideas. He always wanted to try new things out and um, to try new combinations, and and the goals became slightly different as time went on, and so. Initially, it was just this idea of combining the beautiful flower and the lovely fragrance and shape of plant 
with the wider color range and uh, repeat flowering of the modern roses. But then disease resistance became more and more of an issue, um, not just in his roses, but you know, for all people who bred roses, the public demanded um, roses that uh, didn't need to be sprayed, and quite rightly so, it's absolutely right. And so then his obsession became trying to introduce as much natural health disease resistance into his roses as possible without compromising um, the beauty, the charm, the fragrance of his roses. So and it, can you remember a, a story with the two of you? Because you said this, and now I'm going to key in on it, where he had an idea or a plant, but on the production side of it, for you at that time early on, it was challenging. That you were like, oh, in the in the field, it's not as good as it was in the greenhouse. Which did you ever have that moment where there was a production versus breeding? Because I've, I've met a lot of <laughs> plant breeders who occasionally, they lose sight of the production thing. Or was that always a pretty harmonious relationship? Yeah, I mean, it's always, uh, if a rose is beautiful enough, then that was introduced. And, uh, and yes, it, I remember, yes, yeah, so there were some varieties. When, when, you, um, when you graft the rose out in the field uh, and then it starts growing in the spring, uh, it's very, very susceptible to what we call blowing out. And so that the whole stem, whole, the whole, whole rose would break away from its rootstock and basically you end up with a dead rose. Uh, and some varieties were very, they, they stuck onto their rootstock like you know, really hard glue. Whereas others would you know, give them a little puff and uh, they'd, they'd keel over, and so uh, yes, sometimes some varieties we try to introduce that were just super susceptible to, to blowing out and be an absolute disaster. But it would it would have to be very extreme, uh, and then it would be come down to well, the fault is is is, uh, is mine because I I didn't cut it back early enough. You know, I should have cut it back to stop that. Uh, it's not the fault of the rose. It's, it's your fault for, for not producing it in the, in the right way. Uh, so, it, the, yes, the beauty of the rose was, was always paramount um, when deciding whether to introduce a variety. It, and that is, and as we get ready to wrap up here, Michael, one of the, and I don't know if you've had, because it's still obviously relatively new um, and a fresh thought. Have you put any thought for yourself in, and obviously David was very good at this, uh, paying homage to horticultural figures throughout the years with a lot of the naming of the roses. Have you put his legacy in perspective at all at this point that, that his name obviously, and him as an individual will, is at that level of some of the great horticultural giants of the last 50 75 years oh yes he was he, he, he what he achieved was just uh absolutely amazing i mean it, it's i think it's it's very easy to argue it's, it's the best known um, name in the horticultural world and for all around the world I, I sat a lot on planes going around various countries and quite often you know and i'll be looking at the catalog and making notes or designing gardens and people next to me say oh gosh you know david austin how fantastic they are and things like that um, and, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know much about brands and things like that, but people say it's the only brand in the horticultural world, which, um, is something I find a bit strange, a bit, a bit of a strange concept about that. 
because being working so closely, brand has a slightly nasty connotation to mm. itself. I don't know. But uh, for something so beautiful, you think of a brand as being something that is, is obviously commercially very successful, but just a production let's get let's let's get a little esoteric for a second here michael at the end of the podcast are are you because i I, you said that and it it struck me too the same thing you said about david austin being seen as a brand um are you surprised that it's literally his name right Like, like it is david's name on the company but yet it somehow to so many people doesn't seem that personal that, that there is this perception that it is like this brand, like it's a Procter and Gamble, a Johnson and Johnson, this very detached thing from a person. Does that surprise you at all? It's difficult for me to see how people, other people perceive it, but I can see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so people ask, you know, is there, is there a real David Austin? Is he, you know, is he still alive? They don't know anything about him uh, at all. Of course, working with him for 30 years, he's, He's very close to my heart, really, or, or was. Um, so, yes, it's uh, in this country that they're mostly commonly called, most commonly called English roses, uh, which detaches David Austin a bit. And then often people say, oh, it's a David Austin rose. But in fact, it wasn't bred by David Austin. But yeah, it's, it's, um, <laughs> it's just a wonderful institution. Uh, and uh, he's created a just wonderful legacy those beautiful plants that will be around for a very long time look at my window what do i see a little blue bird looking back at me he sings a song all alone in his nest and i wonder if he's singing about loneliness i open my window and take it all in there's a Number by my new blue friend Is he looking for a lover Or did one just sleep Does he really feel blue Or does his color deceive Tell me why is the bluebird blue Is a song he sings A somber tune Does he feel like I feel Since I lost you Tell me why is the bluebird blue Don't hang around too long A mockingbird makes a living off of other bird songs And I heard somewhere that a robin weeps But the bluebird is still one that I can't read Tell me why is the bluebird blue? Is a song he sings a somber tune? Does he feel like I feel since I lost you? Tell me why is the bluebird blue? Spring is out and there's love in the air And I know that I've got plenty to share The bluebird's blooming but it's so in my hand I feel about as low as the bluebird flies Tell me why is the bluebird blue? Is a song he sings a somber tune 
Does he feel like I feel since I lost you? Tell me why is the bluebird, why is the bluebird blue? Is a song he sings a somber tune? Does he feel like I feel since I lost you? Tell me why is the bluebird in blue? Yeah, baby, why is the bluebird in blue? Tell me why is the blue. 